Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. I'm William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. The subject of today's episode is American federalism, the constitutional arrangement that divides political power between the federal government and the states. For many Americans, federalism is seen as a bulwark of American democracy. The balance of powers between the federal government and the states serves to protect American liberty. Vigilant state officials can intervene to check abusive power from the central government. Allocation of power to the states also allows for policy diversity among the states to facilitate divergent local needs and to permit policy experimentation. The states, in this view, are America's laboratories of democracy. Being closer to the people, the states are often seen as more responsive and accountable to the needs of citizens. Federalism also promotes economic prosperity as states compete with one another to enact policies that attract citizens and businesses. Critics of federalism see the situation quite differently. States, they argue, have historically used their power not to protect citizen rights, but to oppress them. Federalism often is cited as a key factor in the perpetuation of slavery, as Southern slaveholders would assert states' rights to prevent Northern interference in their ability to enslave. A century later, segregationists would revive states' rights as a mantra to block federal government efforts to protect the civil rights of African Americans. Critics also see state governments as more susceptible to to corruption and elite dominance. The variation of policies among the states also impedes uniform social welfare policies throughout the country that would reduce economic inequality. The competition between the states, rather than promoting the well-being of citizens, incentivizes state leaders to craft policies such as low taxes or anti-union measures to attract corporations at the expense of better public services. These arguments are very much alive in the United States as conflicts continue between the states and the federal government in a host of policy areas, including health care, response to the COVID epidemic, immigration, abortion, the environment, and many others. During Trump's presidency, many progressive states used state power to resist Trump administration initiatives, just as conservative states had done to resist President Obama. With the progressive Democratic administration back in power, Republican-dominated states once again have used the power levers provided by the federal system to resist the Biden administration. Amid all this conflict that that federalism facilitates, the larger questions remain. Does the federal system serve to enhance or undermine American democracy? And does federalism favor conservative policies? Does it have a conservative bias? Or does it offer opportunities for progressive policy change? With us on Beyond Your Newsfeed today is Professor Adam Myers, who will lead us through the analysis of the pros and cons of American federalism. Myers, in his own research, has been examining the connection between federalism and democracy so is very well prepared to enlighten us on this topic. Professor Adam Myers, welcome back again to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thanks, Bill. I am thrilled to be here to talk about one of my favorite topics, which, in my opinion, doesn't get nearly the amount of attention it deserves. Okay, so why don't you get start us off with the basics, Professor Myers. Exactly what is federalism? That's an excellent question, Bill. It's actually a very, very difficult concept to define. 
Generally speaking, when people think of federalism, they think of a system of government that divides power between national and subnational governments. And so by that definition, we're a federal system because power in the United States is divided between a national government and the states. The problem with that definition is that every country in the world divides power between national and subnational governments to some extent. So if federalism just means decentralization, then every country in the world is federal. So we need a better definition than that. So the most common alternative definition of federalism in political science is that it's a system of government in which subnational governments have a constitutional right of existence. Uh, so in the case of the United States, the U.S. Constitution guarantees the states their territory. Congress isn't allowed to combine Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts into one big state, bigger state. It's not allowed to split Texas up into five states. Um, and this is as opposed to, say, France, which is a country that you know well, Bill, uh, where the French parliament created France's administrative regions, and therefore it can dissolve them. Um, so the basic idea here is that because uh, the states have a constitutional right to exist, the U.S. is a federal system. Uh, some people would say that that definition doesn't really do a good job of describing federalism either because, you know, in a lot of countries, uh, subnational governments can have a constitutional right to exist, but they don't actually do anything substantive. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's like federalism in name only. Uh, and so another definition of federalism that's been offered is federalism is a system in which subnational governments have a constitutional guarantee of policy autonomy. In other words, uh, there's some sphere of public policy in which only subnational governments may make public policy. So for example, in our neighbor to the north, Canada, the Canadian constitution explicitly states that uh, education policy can only be made by the Canadian provinces. The Canadian federal government may not make education policy, and that's what makes Canada a federal system. In our case, it's very complicated because, of course, our Constitution lists uh, the powers that Congress has, and then the Tenth Amendment famously says whatever powers Congress doesn't have, the states retain, but it doesn't list what those powers are, and Congress's powers... Uh, that are listed are really quite vague, and throughout American history, uh, Congress has intervened in areas that were previously viewed as being in the state's sphere of public policymaking. So actually, you know, when you got started in political science in the early 1970s, Bill, at that point, a lot of political scientists were arguing that the U.S. is not even a federal system anymore. Uh, because the national government had in, in interfered in so many or intervened in so many areas of public policy making that were once reserved for the states, uh, that the states really no longer had any policy autonomy to speak of. Um, and so, of course, a lot of things have changed since then, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of what's changed. But to make a long story short, this is a very complex and difficult concept to untangle. And I think Generally speaking, when people in America today talk about federalism, what they actually mean is just decentralization, right? We're a federal system because we're very decentralized, right? And it's not exactly clear uh, at what point um, of decentralization a country becomes a federal system. Uh, and so there's just a lot of lack of clarity on this concept. Yeah. Adam, well, let's, well if we can back up a little bit to what you were saying about the ambiguity of the U.S. Constitution, which assigns specific but in some ways vague and potentially broad powers 
to Congress uh, and reserves powers to the states, unspecified, uh, that there's that, that ambiguity there has, has made uh, federalism kind of a battleground throughout American history, right? Every time there's a, a policy uh, issue that arises, you know, there's always the question of, well, who's responsible for that policy? Is it the states or is it the federal government? I mean, this even goes back to the fight over slavery, right? Uh, that was a largely an, an argument about, well, should the federal government be making policies regarding slavery, or does the Constitution require that that's only the state's uh, responsibility? Uh, and so we're, we, we see that perpetually, you know, conti continuing to today. Uh, in the COVID crisis, uh, uh, did the federal government have any uh, rights vis-a-vis -vis the states, or was it the states who were supposed to make policy around COVID. Yeah, that's exactly right. This has been a recurring theme throughout American history. Uh, one political scientist has uh, stated that what federalism really does is it creates a double battleground in, in the American political system. We're not just arguing about what public policy should be. We're also arguing about what level of government should public policies be implemented at and formulated at. And that sort of double battleground of American politics makes our politics incredibly complex and I would argue interesting. Um, but a lot of people say, it, it, you know, that uh, the complexity uh, of federalism isn't, makes it not worth it, that it would be better if our system were more efficient, more simple. And so this has been an ongoing debate throughout American history as well. Yeah. Another point to get in on the table, though, uh, when you talk about uh, is is the United States uh, a, a federal system really the the 1970s views that maybe federalism was done? Uh, you have to nevertheless point out that states in the American system retain a lot of lot of power. Uh, that that the United States is not France, where the the central government basically dictates all policy choices. In the United States, the states are important political actors. Uh, responsible for key policy areas. It takes someplace, uh, something like education, for example. That's still largely, it's a state-level uh, issue. There are federal policies related to education, uh, but they uh, only dictate what happens in particular states in a limited way. Uh, and I, I, I think the power of the states was really brought home by the COVID crisis, because you think back to those months when everybody was concerned about containing the pandemic. Uh, there was a lot of talk about, uh, the, the federal government was making lots of recommendations from the CDC and elsewhere, Dr. Fauci recommending what ought to be done, but the federal government had really limited ability to dictate what citizens had to do in response to the, uh, the pandemic, as opposed to the states, which could impose lockdowns it was the states that imposed lockdowns across the country, not the federal government. That's why you had some states where there were lockdowns and other states like Florida, where, in fact, people kind of went about basically their normal lives. And the same with vaccines, right? Uh, the federal government had limited ability to mandate vaccinations, but states could do it. Uh, so you had in New York, uh, in order to go into a restaurant, you had to show proof of vaccination. That wasn't the federal government requiring that. That was the state government. And I think Americans often lose sight of that, that you know, they worry about government power and limits to liberty, 
But if you really th- look deeply, it's the states that are in much better position <laughs> to limit c- citizens' liberty and, and constrain what people do, uh, not the federal government. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think you're, the point you made about the pandemic is spot on. You know, during those early months of the pandemics, I think citizens could really see in a crystal clear way um, how much state policymaking affects them, because we kind of really de- did develop almost overnight a patchwork quilt of COVID policies regarding lockdowns and then later vaccines and so forth. And, you know, even in the early 1970s, this sort of apogee of national policymaking, when uh, the national government had, or after the national government had over the course of about 40 years, intervened in all sorts of areas of American life in which it had never intervened before. Even at that point, there was still a lot of uh, policy variation across states. And um, since then, that policy variation has grown substantially on issue after issue, whether we're talking about taxes, the environment, abortion rights, obviously, uh, gun control, health care, social welfare policy. Right, differences across states have really grown dramatically since the early 1970s. Yeah, but but going back to the 70s, uh, I, you pointed out I started out my career studying federalism, and I studied federal grants. And the interesting thing about the American federal grant system is that, uh, and that's that's the main instrument for the federal government to act in the domestic arena. Okay, the the federal government has a very small bureaucracy itself. Uh, although a lot of pundits seem to suggest otherwise. <laughs> but in fact, what they're, and the federal government has about 3 million civilian employees. The states employ about uh, five times that, about 15 million uh, employees at the state level. Uh, and when the federal government does something, like I mentioned education policy before, the federal government passes education laws, but the federal government has no bureaucracy for enacting education policy. It acts through the states. It provides grants and aid to the states and says, we'll give you some money to do the things we want you to do. Uh, But the states are the ones who actually administer the programs and have considerable flexibility to shape those programs as they implement them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, To a large degree in modern America, the states are the agents of the federal government. They're the ones that implement a lot of federal programs. And conservatives detest this, right? What conservatives routinely say is that states should regain their autonomy. They shouldn't be agents. They should be sovereign actors. But you know, another perspective would argue there's actually a lot of power in being an agent, right? You right. can really shape policymaking as an agent. You don't have to be sovereign to exercise political power. And, and so this is the point that a lot of progressive defenders of federalism these days are making. Yeah, in fact, uh, in my old days when I was studying Fuller Grants, one of the things that, that I wrote about was the fact that, uh, that in receiving federal grants, that also empowers the states to become actors at the federal level uh, because you employ a lot of bureaucrats who are involved in administering federal programs, and they uh, develop uh, a lot of say and influence over those programs and, in fact, propose changes and modifications modifications to federal law based upon state experiences. And then states band together oftentimes to lobby the federal government about uh, what policies the federal government should adopt in a lot of policy areas that the states then will carry out. So I think I think you're right. It's it's not a simple uh, zero sum game where 
uh, when the federal government exerts power, that reduces state power. In a lot of ways, one could argue that this era of expansion of federal power from the 1930s through the 1970s was also an era when the power of state governments expanded enormously. Uh, that's when you saw the expansion of state bureaucracies. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, that, that the federal government was taking power away from the states. It was giving the, the states resources that allowed the state governments to do more than they could before. That's 100% true, Bill. And actually, you know, my academic work right now is really focused on that. Uh, there's kind of this conventional wisdom out there that the 1930s represented a revolution in federalism wherein the national government uh, took over a lot, a lot of policies that the states were previously responsible for, and it eclipsed the states, and so on and so forth. But the reality is quite the opposite. Prior to the 1930s, the state governments were really hollow shells. Um, they administered legal systems, uh, and they uh, made laws governing moral issues. But fiscally speaking, they were very small, right? And at the same time as the national government grew dramatically, in the 1930s and the 1940s and 50s and 60s, the states were growing dramatically. Um, and states took over education systems from local governments, and they began spending a lot of money on transportation and on social welfare and also on prisons. And so the reality is that uh, the past 90 years of American history has not, has not been an era of national growth at the expense of the states. It's been an era of growth of government at all levels, national, state, and local. Yeah, exactly. You're singing my song, Adam. <laughs> uh, that's that's I would agree with that a hundred percent. Okay, well let's let's address some of these uh, larger sort of philosophical questions that I mentioned in the intro. Uh, does federalism uh, enhance or impede uh, American democracy, and and is federalism fundamentally a kind of conservative institution? Is it biased towards conservative policy outcomes? Or does it open up opportunities for progressives? Uh, maybe one way to get at that is to talk about, just uh, as, as an entry point, a recent book by a political scientist named Jacob Grumbach, uh, someone who, uh, whose work you, Adam, uh, informed me about. Uh, he wrote a re recent book called Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transform State Politics. Uh, so Grumbach is in the camp that says conservatives, that federalism is basically anti-democratic and fundamentally conservative. Uh, so you want to kind of summarize briefly his thesis? What's, what's his argument here? Yeah, that's right, Bill. So there's a lot of parts to his thesis. And, and I should preface all this by saying I think, you know, his book is, is an excellent work of social science. It's very provocative. I have some differences of opinion with it. But he starts from... Uh, the premise that I uh, laid out earlier, that since the 1970s, there's been a real resurgence in the policymaking power of the states. Um, between the 1930s and the 1970s, there was a lot of standardization uh, across states in policymaking that was largely driven by national intervention. Uh, but beginning in the 70s, uh, thanks to you know probably the most important trend in Amer American politics of the modern era, polarization. Uh, the national government began to slow down its policy-making capacity. The Congress became gridlocked and so forth. Um, and the state sort of picked up the slack, right? Where Congress became gridlocked and stopped uh, producing public policies, the states became very active engines of policy-making. 
And that's in large part because unlike the national government, the states tend to be controlled by one political party. So right now, 39 of the 50 states have unified control of government. You know, uh, 22 states are controlled entirely by Republicans. 17 states are controlled entirely by Democrats. And so unified government at the state level has led to a lot of policy activity um, at the state level. And red and blue states have been going in opposite directions in regards to lots of different policy areas. Again, abortion is the most obvious one. That's the one that's front and center these days. But we could also talk about tax policy, environmental policy, and so forth. Um, and so, so that's one part of his argument. There's been a resurgence of policymaking at the state level over the past 50 years. The other part of his argument is a more normative argument. He argues that this is not really a good thing um, because this policy resurgence of the states, according to him, isn't evidence of a blossoming of democracy at the state level, um, but rather something quite different. It's actually more about uh, the national partisan war, right? The, the national parties are trying to advance their agendas through the states. Um, and more than that, even interest groups and political activists who have national agendas are uh, trying to advance their agendas successfully at the state level where they can have a greater chance of success. And so for him, um, all of this state policy resurgence is evidence of kind of elite capture of state governments. Um, and and there's not, these are not policies that are bubbling up from the grassroots, according to him. They're driven by ideological interest groups, in many cases, moneyed interest groups. Um, and the other part of his argument, yeah, I guess— and Just to stop there, and, yeah. and an example of that would be, one might argue that, say, in Texas, that's passed very restrictive abortion laws. Those laws don't really reflect the preferences of Texas citizens— in fact, you can look at poll data that shows just as nationally, citizens in Texas are kind of in the middle of the road on abortion, uh, don't like it, but uh, don't favor overly restrictive uh, policies. But the state legislature enacts them anyway because they're responding to national political forces, not what they're hearing from their constituents. And that's, that's the argument. Right? That's the argument. And, and, and so you're right. A big part of his argument is, is that state governments are not actually responsive to their citizens. And in large part, he would say that's because uh, state governments are low visibility governments, right? Americans these days pay a lot more attention to what's going on in Washington, D.C. than they do uh, to what's going on in their state capitals. And that's a result of the fact that our media environment has become so nationalized, right? People get their news from national media sources, not state media sources. Um, and so because voters uh, don't have actually the resources to pay attention to what's going on in their state houses, um, state there's a decline in newspapers at the state level. That was a subject of a previous Beyond Your Newsfeed podcast. Which I very much enjoyed. Right. That's so, right. So that's another factor. Citizens really don't. There aren't very many journalists. Uh, there aren't as many journalists at in state houses reporting on what state legislatures are doing as there used to be. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is the case across all states. You know, here in Rhode Island, you know, the Providence Journal used to have uh, dozens of reporters covering the state house now. I think they're down to five, right? And um, and actually, I think we 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 have a pretty good uh, local media in landscape here in Rhode Island. In a lot of states, it's a lot worse. Um, so, the importance of this is that you know, if 
citizens can't monitor state governments and, and they don't know what they're doing, then the, uh, the democratic accountability mechanism is not there. That's Grumbach's argument. Mm -hmm. And so um, state legislatures can get away with passing uh, policies on issues like abortion that are wildly out of step uh, with what uh, their citizens want. Right. And, and if you're an ambitious state politician— say, a Governor DeSantis or a go, uh, from Florida or Governor Abbott in Texas, uh, the way you advance in national politics uh, is by keying into these national issues, not necessarily worrying that much about what your citizens are concerned about in, in your own state. Right? That's right. Uh, and so part of what Gernbach is saying, and I think this is actually conventional wisdom at this point, is that states these days are actually sites of national policymaking, right? They are uh, in, many in many ways not particularly attuned to local issues, local circumstances, and so forth. Uh, they've become sites of the national partisan battle. Okay. Uh and I think you were going to talk about a second part to the argument. Oh, yeah. Well, the last, I think the last, so I think of Grumbach's argument as being kind of composed of three different uh, components. The first is there's been this policy resurgence of states. The second is this has been driven by uh, the, the national partisan divide and by national interest groups. And the third is that uh, states have become the quote-unquote laboratories of democratic backsliding. In other words, um, particularly in Republican states, uh, there, has been, there have been all of these laws that have been passed to restrict the right to vote, to make it more difficult to vote, uh, to gerrymander legislative districts and so forth. And so whereas our kind of national mythology would hold that states are laboratories of democracy, um, Grumbach would say in the modern era, uh, states have become laboratories against democracy. That's the title of his book. Okay, so you've laid out the argument, his argument. Uh, so what, uh, is, is it true? Uh, are there some, uh, to what extent uh, should we accept this? What are there some possible uh, caveats or flaws here that we should think about? Yeah, so I, th I think, listen, I think his social science is solid and I think he's onto something. Um, but there are a number of problems with his argument that we need to think about closely. Uh, first of all, sort of the subtle undercurrent of his argument, and this, and he makes this clear in the conclusion of his book, is that uh, the national government is somehow more small d democratic than the states, and so uh, transferring power from the states to the national government in this nationalized era would help to facilitate democracy or enhance democracy. And I think it's important to interrogate that premise, right? The, the, the basic idea here that, uh, you know, de democracy would be facilitated by a stronger national government, I think is highly questionable. Let's just look, let's just compare the national government and the states in terms of quality of democracy on a number of important metrics. So I think most theorists of democracy would say that uh, democracy requires that all citizens in a polity have an equally weighted vote, right? That your vote counts as much as anybody else's, no matter where they live, uh, no matter who you are. Um, in terms of our national political institutions, that's clearly not the case, right? Due to the Electoral College, not all citizens 
uh, votes count the same for presidential elections. Due to the malapportionment of the U.S. Senate, uh, citizens do not enjoy uh, equal voting power in reference to the U.S. Senate. Um, but at the state level, it is in fact the case, right, that um, all citizens within a state, their votes count equally in races for governor, in races for state legislature. Uh, this has been at least the case since the early 1960s. And so um, I think on that metric, states are more small d democratic than the national government. I think most democratic theorists would also say that a, a, a polity is more democratic when there is some mechanism in place for voters to express their preferences directly via a referendum process, right, where politicians are not involved. Uh, and at the national level, there is no such mechanism. We do not have uh, the ability to have a national referendum on any policy issue under the U.S. Constitution. We can't have a national referendum about the issue of abortion, for example. Uh, but at the state level, uh, the referendum process is alive and well. First of all, almost all states have a referendum process in place for amending their state constitutions. And then in a lot of Western states like California and Oregon, there's a citizen-initiated referendum process, right? Citizens can bypass elected officials and put public policy questions on the ballot, right? Which is, in many respects, the purest form of democracy there is. So once again, um, on that metric, the states are more democratic than the national government. Um, thirdly, you know, if we look at the judicial power at the national level versus the state level, um, at the national level, judges serve life terms, right? There is no way to dislodge them once they're on the federal bench. And when they make a decision about the meaning of the U.S. Constitution, there's effectively no way to override them because the U.S. Constitution is incredibly difficult to amend. At the state level, it's entirely different. First of all, most state judges are elected. Um, and even in states like, even in states where judges are not elected, they usually serve a long term in office and they have to be reappointed or there's mandatory retirement at a certain age, right? So um, the only state in the union that has the federal model of life terms is the one we're in right now, Rhode Island. Um, and state uh, judges, uh, you know, their ability to kind of influence public policy is lower because uh, state constitutions are much easier to amend than uh, the federal constitution, right? So if a state Supreme Court says that the state constitution means something, and most of the public disagrees, the public can override them via a referendum. So I think as you go point by point by point in terms of different aspects of democracy, um, what you actually find is that the states, the way they're institutionally set up, are a lot more democratic than the national government. And so given that I think this is true, that the notion that we would have more democracy if we transferred more power to the national government is highly suspect. Yeah, but I think this impression that the national government is more progressive and, and, and the states uh, get in the way of progressive politics results from uh, certain experience with, with different kinds of policies. Uh, the Affordable Care Act to expand health insurance, for example, was enacted at the national level. There had been some early state-level experiments in Massachusetts, for example, but, the, but in order to expand health insurance for citizens across the country. You had to have a federal law. But then there were all these conservative legislatures in a number of states who suddenly 
tried to get in the way and impede this progressive policy change. Uh, most importantly, with the help of the Supreme Court, uh, preventing the expansion of Medicaid uh, in many states, which would have provided health insurance to lots and lots of uh, low-income people. Uh, and you have other historical examples uh, uh, from the civil rights era. Uh, it was the federal government that had to intervene to uh, strike down Jim Crow laws and expand the rights of, uh, of, uh, of uh, African Americans. And, and even going back to, the, to, to, the, to the, perhaps the best example, slavery was ended by an exertion of national government power. Uh, and and uh, so I think that's perhaps the source of a lot of this impression that that it's uh, it's the national government that is is the engine. Oh, we can go back to the New Deal as well. I'll throw that in there. Uh, the New Deal, uh, all the uh, Social Security uh, expanded ability for workers to join labor unions, all that came about as a result of an exertion of national government power. Um, so, so uh, your analysis makes sense in terms of institutions and, and the abstract structure of governments, but what about the historical reality? Uh, something's going on there uh, if it's the federal government that's uh, pushing progressive change. Right. So whew, there is a lot to your question, right? And there's a lot of history, to, uh, historical ground to cover. Uh, and so let me do my best to kind of disaggregate it, right? So first of all, I think we need to distinguish between uh, facilitating democracy as a goal and facilitating progressive policies as a goal, right? I think this is a common problem for pro progressives. They tend to conflate those, right? A lot of progressives seem to think democracy will naturally lead to progressive policy. But if you have democracy, you have to open the, up the possibility that voters will vote for conservative policies, right? So let's, let's set these two things aside. In terms of whether uh, federalism has historically facilitated democracy, I think, obviously, the answer to that is no, right? As you point out, federalism was used to justify segregation uh, throughout the period between the Civil War and the Civil Rights era in the 1960s. It is important to point out, though, that prior to the Civil War, uh, federalism was in many cases uh, deployed by northern states to advance abolition, right? Northern states uh, made states' rights arguments in favor of why they shouldn't uh, follow the Fugitive Slave Act, which essentially tried to commission the states as agents to uh, collect fugitive slaves, round them up, and send them back to southern states. Right? And we have to point out, at, at a time, it was the constitutional structure actually gave southern states more power at the national level in Congress and the Senate, and most presidents of the United States prior to the Civil War were Southerners. Right? That's exactly right. And the most nationalizing Supreme Court decision of all time was the Dred Scott decision, which literally says the U.S. Constitution protects a right to property, which prevents states from being, well, prevents at least federal territories, and Abraham Lincoln thought this was going to be applied to states too, uh, prevents uh, localities from being able to stop slave owners from taking their slaves into other jurisdictions, right? So the story here is really quite complicated, uh, but there's no doubt that since the Civil War, uh, or between the Civil War and the Civil Rights era, 
um, federalism and quote unquote states' rights were used to justify racial segregation and hierarchy and apartheid. That's all true. Um, but I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is now, right, given these federal interventions that were made in the 1950s and 1960s, um, is it really the case that federalism, uh, that more federalism would uh, undermine democracy today? Uh, and I'm, I'm not so certain about that. Um, in terms of uh, federalism and its... Oh, we can maybe point to the current Supreme Court, uh, which is... Uh, has a conservative, a very solid conservative majority, uh, quite a contrast from the more progressive majority in the post-World War II era, uh, which uh, a lot of progressives suddenly discovered that uh, for years the progressives had assumed the federal government, the, federal, the Supreme Court was a protector of liberal values, but suddenly progressives have woken up and seen uh, the Supreme Court can be a very conservative institution, and actually has been for most of American history. Yeah, and we're seeing more and more evidence of the current conservative Supreme Court striking down progressive state laws. So, for example, a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court struck down an Illinois law mandating uh, that public employees pay union dues. Um, and, you know, I expect that over time there's going to be more labor-weakening decisions coming out of the Supreme Court that target labor laws passed by blue states. Uh, and so I, I think you're right. The existence of a conservative Supreme Court um, at the moment um, makes the notion that the national government is the engine of progressive policy and the states are the engine of conservative policies even more suspect. Yeah, and uh, what about, I, I should add there also, conservative Supreme Court uh, overruling uh, gun control laws at yep. the state level. that's a great example. Uh, and, uh, and certainly there's a lot of progressives are worried that the Supreme Court is going to uh, intervene to uh, in, in, in areas like environment and uh, uh, overrule uh, state environmental laws. So that's another area of, of concern for progressives anyway. Uh, what about this democratic backsliding argument that Grumbach makes? Yeah, so I think, uh, I'm glad you asked me about that because I think this may be the, the weakest part of his book. So he does this analysis that, that, uh, that uh, is based on this metric of democracy that he calculates. Um, and based on his analysis, he argues that there is evidence that the states um, have been kind of engaged in democratic backsliding, meaning they've been weakening democracy via um, making it harder to vote, passing voter ID laws, gerrymandering, and so forth. But there's, I think, a number of problems with his analysis. First of all, um, what he actually finds is that some states, meaning Republican-controlled states, have been backsliding, while other states, uh, Democratic states, have been expanding the right to vote, making it um, much easier to vote. Uh, and so, you know, really, he should be calling um, this chapter of his book uh, Laboratories of Polarization and Election Policy. That would be the more accurate description of his findings. Um, but I think the bigger uh, point I want to make is that it's actually across almost all states. It's a whole lot easier to vote today uh, than it was in, for example, the late 1960s, which was after the Voting Rights Act, the big federal intervention into election policy. Um, and so states have been consistently across the board making it easier to vote over time. 
um, and not because the federal government is forcing them to. So, for example, almost all states these days have some form of early in-person voting, right? Very few states don't anymore, right? And that's not a policy change that was forced on the states by the federal government. The states did it themselves. Um, almost all states these days have online voter registration, which makes it a lot easier to register to vote. And that's also not a, a policy change that was forced on the states by the federal government. Same thing with no, abs no excuse absentee voting, right? That's almost ubiquitous across states at this, at this point. Some states have full-fledged full vote by mail. Other states have it in a more limited fashion. But almost all states have it in some form. And so, in fact, the polarization in election policy that we're seeing is actually not primarily because Republican states are backsliding. Rather, it's because Democratic states are making voting easier at a faster rate than Republican states. But all states have, over the past 50 years, been making voting easier. And so this idea that, you know, there's this kind of authoritarian surge at the state level, I think it's a little overmuch. Also, it seems to me, given what you say about the sort of normalization of a lot of these uh, policies that make voting easier, uh, citizens have come to accept them. As normal, right? One hundred percent, and that that it's created a kind of status quo, and even for uh, someone who who wants to discourage voting, uh, that could be a barrier. Uh, that is, the, the citizens who are there now on the ground are, are likely to resist uh, efforts to uh, impede voting that much and uh, and respond. And the other the other thing that I've observed is that even those states uh, that that do backslide, that put barriers in the way, uh, those barriers themselves often spur greater voter participation. Citizens get angry if, they're, if they think that, uh, that politicians are trying to prevent them from voting. And so that just uh, spurs them on to want to go out and vote, uh, vote in elections anyway. Yeah, I, that's, I think that's right. Uh, so a, there's been a lot of attention in the media um, particularly in the left-wing media, about these voter ID laws that a lot of Republican-controlled states have passed in the past um, 12, 14 years. And I'm not arguing that all these voter ID laws are good or that they don't have any sort of malicious intent and so forth. That's not what I'm arguing. Uh, but I think the notion that these voter ID laws have, have led to a, a massive contraction in democracy in the states where they've been passed is quite exaggerated. Almost all of these states, right, Wisconsin, um, North Carolina, Texas, and so forth, have seen v much higher rates of voter turnout over the past few years. I'm, I'm sure that at the margins, uh, these voter ID laws have made it more difficult for some po folks to vote, and, and that's unfortunate, and it needs to be addressed. Uh, but Again, it's a, you know, it's a question of um, extent. And I think these arguments about a kind of electoral authoritarianism at the state level or democratic backsliding at the state level, um, they need to be dialed down a bit. Something is going on, but it's not a crisis. Okay. So we might argue some more about that, uh, sure. the extent to which it's, it's a crisis. And certainly as, as someone who favors democracy, it does really bother me when uh, state politicians, even in this, with this background of expanded access to the ballot, uh, when politicians come along and want to, to stop that or move in the other direction, it is alarming, and I think it's something we should keep our, keep our eye on. 
uh, even if you're right that as so far it hasn't had a major impact on the ability of most people uh, to exercise the franchise. Um, so, but I want to address this issue. So if you're right, Professor Myers, it's the states that are the democratic uh, levels of government, that the states are much more democratic institutionally than the national government. Uh, does this open possibilities if progressives are right and the people favor progressive policies? Uh, does this open up opportunities for progressive policy change at the state level? I, I think the answer to that is undeniably yes. Uh, now, to be sure, there are lots of progressive policy priorities that, that can really be only effectively implemented nationally. Um, and so I, I don't want to argue that if you're a progressive, you should focus all your energy and attention on the states and that the national government is a lost cause. Um, it's important for anybody, uh, a progressive, conservative, whatever, who, who is interested in um, a f policy change and getting over overcoming the current status quo in American politics to focus on the national government in addition to the states and localities. However, I think there is a tremendous amount that can be done at the state level to advance progressive policy priorities. And we're seeing this kind of um, blossoming of progressive policymaking at the state level right now. Uh, you know, uh, a, a wonderful example of this, I think, is in the state of Michigan, right, which is one of these states that was pointed to for a long time as, as being kind of a center of Democratic backsliding and the Republican policy resurgence and so on and so forth. Republicans took over Michigan state government in 2010, and they passed a lot of conservative policies. Um, but Democrats clawed their way back. Um, they put a uh, redistricting reform constitutional amendment on the ballot via the citizen initiative process, something that does not exist at the national level, as, as I emphasized earlier. Um, and they reformed the redistricting process in Michigan such that now there are fair districts in the state. And in 2022, uh, Democrats took control of Michigan state government, and now they're making major changes. They're on the verge of repealing the state's um, really uh, uh, pro, uh, punitive abortion law. Uh, they just uh, passed a bill through the Michigan legislature this week repealing the state's right-to-work law. The first time a right-to-work law has been repealed. That's right. States. So this is really a tremendous achievement for the labor movement, right? Rolling back this tide of anti-union legislation that's been going on really for about 30, 40 years. Um, and kind of returning Michigan to its place as kind of the center of the labor movement, its kind of birthplace and the birthplace of a lot of pro-labor policies. Um, and I think, you know, this, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a, a ton of climate legislation coming out of the states right now, a ton of affordable housing legislation coming out of the states right now, uh, the, the Democrat-controlled states, um, a lot of gun control legislation as well. Um, the state of Illinois uh, just became the first state to eliminate cash bail, uh, so criminal justice reform is an active policy area for progressives in the states right now. And so, uh, you know, I, I think clearly um, a lot can be done at the state level to advance progressive policy priorities. Yeah, and I think it also would provide a lesson to progressives who oftentimes focus so much on national policy that, that uh, you need to mobilize at the state level uh, 
uh, if you're interested in promoting progressive policy change. Yeah, one, one argument that, that I read in some of the, the articles you had me read before this podcast, Adam, was, was an argument by some professor, progressives about what are called spillover effects, that uh, particularly if you get progressive governments in big states like California or New York or Illinois, uh, they can enact state-level policies that, in fact, affect uh, a, a whole industry nationally. And the best example of that is California's uh, really tight uh, emission control laws on automobile em emissions. Uh, because California is such a big market, uh, that in effect forces the auto industry to reduce emissions on all its cars marketed throughout the country. That's exactly right. And so this is an area in which conservatives actually really don't like federalism. <laughs> and if you'll recall, during the Trump administration, right, there was uh, the Trump administration, when Trump was president, the Trump administration tried to rescind California's ability to set its own auto emission standards because of pressure from the auto industry. Uh, and so I think that's a great example of how federalism works in all sorts of very complicated ways. And so it's very difficult, I think, to say just sort of that as a general matter, it has a conservative bias or a progressive bias. So much is contingent on who's in power at the national level, who's in power at yeah. the state level. It can play out in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of the old uh, where you stand depends upon where you sit argument, right? Where you stand in federalism uh, really depends upon uh, the particular circumstances at the moment. Uh, so when Trump's president, uh, federalism looks pretty good to Democrats because they can use state power to resist uh, a conservative uh, uh, national administration and vice versa uh, when a somewhat progressive Biden administration is in power, uh, the more conservative states can use the federalism to resist those policies. That's right. And so this is what one scholar, Jessica Bullman-Posen, who, who's a law professor at Columbia, she calls this partisan federalism, right? Um, and, and she says this is really the way federalism works in American politics today, right? Um, federalism um, basically creates a, uh, an environment in which the states serve as laboratories or as sites, I guess, of partisan opposition to the national government. Right. And so when uh, the Democrats are in power nationally, Republicans love federalism. Uh, and when Democrats are in power nationally uh, or when Republicans are in power nationally, Democrats love federalism. And, you know, one might roll their eyes at all this and say, well, this means nobody actually really likes federalism. Right. It's just it's just a strategy. It's just a means to an end, a national end. Um, and I think there is some truth to that. Right. OK. Uh, well, I think we've covered a lot of the arguments here for and against federalism and is it conservative, progressive. Uh, why don't we finish off a little bit, though, talking about your own research, Adam. Uh, you're doing a major study of, of federalism, uh, looking at federalism back in the 1930s. Right? From the 1930s to today. To today. Yeah. Okay, so what? tell us a little bit about that project. What, what are your? I know you're, you're in the midst of it. Uh, you don't have any kind of final results, but uh, what are your what are your goals? What do you want to find out, and and uh, how are you coming? 
<laughs> Thank, uh, thanks for asking me about this, Bill. I'm, I'm excited to talk a little bit about my own research here. So um, my project is really focused on fiscal federalism, right? Fiscal federalism refers to the relationship between the national government and the states in the area of taxing and spending. And it's really motivated by uh, my observation, and I'm not the first person who's made this observation, um, but I, I don't think it's been given all that much attention. Um, my observation that when you compare the United States to other federal systems, because this is an important point that we haven't actually talked about very much, we're not the only federal country in the world, right? Our neighbor to the north, Canada, is a federal country. Germany is a federal country. Australia is a federal country. But in all those other countries, federalism works very differently than it works here. And, and so this gets very complicated. Um, but sort of in a small nutshell, um, generally speaking, um, in these other countries, uh, the national government raises the bulk of the tax revenue in the country, right? And so states and localities are uh, uh, sort of dependent on the national government for their fiscal resources, for their um, sources of revenue. Uh, and generally speaking, um, even in countries, uh, even in federal countries uh, where the, the states or provinces raise their own tax revenue, there's some kind of fiscal equalization scheme, meaning there's a commitment on the part of the national government to equalize uh, the resources of the subnational governments so that whether a subnational government is, is wealthy or poor, you know, whether it's economically vibrant or economically distressed, all subnational governments operate with, roughly speaking, the same level of resources, right? And we've just never had that here in the United States, right? Our subnational governments, our states, are primarily responsible for raising their own revenue. Uh, and, you know, the federal government gives the states money to implement particular programs, but it doesn't give the states money with the goal of ensuring that all states are on the same economic playing field. So... My book starts in the 1930s, my book project starts in the 1930s when really, as I mentioned earlier, for the first time in American history, states need to raise a lot of revenue all at once. Prior to the 1930s, um, states really didn't need to raise much money. The stuff they did didn't, didn't require much money. But suddenly in the Great Depression, right, uh, due to the need to provide funds for poor relief and a wide variety of other things. States need to raise a lot of money, and they need to raise a lot of money fast. And so um, in this kind of critical juncture, as I call it, states go in all sorts of different directions. Some states um, pass income taxes. Some states pass sales taxes. Some states do both. Um, and, and so this kind of put states on uh, kind of distinct pathways, right? The create, um, states create tax systems that kind of endure over the course of decades. And it also um, kind of triggers a discussion among uh, policymakers in Washington, D.C. about whether or not having this um, sort of fiscal federalism system in which uh, states, you know, are levying their own taxes and they're levying, levying very different taxes and so on and so forth, um, is a good thing. Um, and so th over the course of my book, I chart how states have changed their tax systems in response to changing circumstances over time, and how the national government has responded 
to changes in state tax systems. In particular, I focus on a moment that you're very familiar with, Bill, the kind of the late 1960s and the early 70s when there was an effort on the part of the national government to have um, to, to set up a system in which the national government would share revenue with the states uh, so as to prevent kind of competition between states over tax policy. And that that effort bore some fruit, but it it was kind of the, the revenue-sharing law that um, Congress passed in the early 70s was a very pale imitation of the kinds of revenue-sharing schemes that exist in other countries. And then I move forward to the 80s, 90s, and 2000s and talk about how the era of partisan polarization has led to greater polarization in state tax policy, how um, states are moving in very different directions in this area. Some states Democratic states are increasingly raising taxes on the wealthy. Republican states are cutting taxes on the wealthy. So we're really getting a red and blue America in tax policy in the 21st centuries. So that's kind of a, a grand tour of what my book is about. Okay. Well, it sounds very interesting. I'm glad you uh, reminded me of revenue sharing, which was a, <laughs> which was, was a big topic back in the early 70s. Uh, never really will, went anywhere of significance and Right. Or, or block grants, uh, which were supposed to give states money that they could use without strings attached. Of course, that never really happened uh, <laughs> either. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, it's a walk down memory lane for me. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, Adam, uh, thanks so much. Uh, that sounds like a very interesting project. Look forward to the book when it comes out, uh, maybe this summer. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to finish the manuscript this summer. Um, I hope oh, you good. hold me to that, Bill, because I, I need somebody to hold me to that. Oh, okay. Well, we'll check back with you in September to <laughs> see if good. the manuscript is uh, done. But, but I'm sure it'll be a, a, great, a great book and a great contribution to political science. And that's what we're about here at, at Providence College, uh, good political science uh, in all sorts of areas. So uh, anyway, thanks so much, Adam, for talking with me about federalism a topic that I really enjoy. Uh, and uh, thanks once again to our uh, in intrepid uh, uh, producer of this podcast, Giovea Harris. Uh, and thanks also to the uh, communications uh, uh, office of Providence College, to Joe Carr and Chris Judge, who continue to support this podcast. And especially thanks so much to our listeners, please tell your friends about Beyond Your Newsfeed.